Good morning. Well, fall came suddenly, didn't it? But what a beautiful day. We're grateful for God's many blessings, and we're grateful for all of you and the opportunity to be together and worship together with all the many opportunities for fellowship that will be coming up over the next few weeks. This morning we are in the book of Genesis in chapter 3. You can turn there with me. And we're in verse 20, and we've looked over the last few weeks at the deception of sin. We've looked not only at the deception of sin, we've looked at the confrontation of sin. That is, God confronting sin in the lives of Adam and Eve. We've also looked at the curses of sin over the last week. We took the time to do that, but now we find ourselves dealing with and studying the consequences of sin. You see, there are not only the curses that come upon Adam and Eve because of their sin, there's the consequences, the things that happen as a result of their sin. And it's important to remember that the curse of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? But while the curse of sin has been reversed in Jesus Christ, the consequences of sin in this world, in our lives, and in our bodies continue on. There are things that we simply cannot experience in these bodies, which is why when we die, we receive new bodies so that we don't have to experience the consequences of sin any longer. And we're looking forward to that day, and that day will come. But as we look at chapter 3 in the book of Genesis and in verse 20, we realize that there, there was something that happened that really just actually devastated mankind at this point, which is Adam and Eve, and it's the consequences of sin. It's, it's the fact that death entered the world. It's the fact that paradise was lost. Maybe you're familiar with John Milton. Maybe you're familiar with Paradise Lost, a poem, an epic poem, that describes the, the consequences of sin in the lives of man and woman. The fact that Paradise was no longer available to them. The blessings of God were no longer to be experienced on this earth because of sin. And so as we look at verses 20 through 24 this morning, I want you to think about the things that sin, unfortunately, brings into our lives. Because there are consequences to our sin as well. And while we have been forgiven and God has done a work and is doing a work and will do a work, we have to remember that there are things that sin just brings into our lives that can be avoided if we live our lives for him. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we lift up to you our hearts now, and we ask that as we spend this time in your word, you would inspire us and encourage us to live for you. Lord, may we understand part of the consequences of our sin, part of the the reality of the curse is that Jesus had to come to die on a cross for our sins, And though he rose again and ever lives to make intercession at the throne of God on our behalf, and that he's coming again, we we long for the day when the consequences of sin are no longer realized in and through our lives. And may that be true in our own lives to the greatest degree while we're here, and we long for and look forward to an eternity of blessings in your presence. Lord, we are grateful and we worship you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start by looking at the verses. We'll read them all, and then we'll go back over them. In verse 20, we read that Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. 
The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, looking at those verses, we want to take them in in little sections here. We want to start by looking at just verse 20. Notice Adam names his wife Eve. Now, you'll remember that the man in Hebrew is Ish, and he had named the woman Isha because she had come out of man. That's the Hebrew, Ish, Isha. And that designated that the woman was taken from the man, as we saw in chapter 2. But he now gave her another name. He named her Eve in Hebrew, Chava. It's a different name. It, it, It is meant to identify her as the mother of all the living. Now, it's interesting because uh, you can speculate as to what would have happened had they had children before they sinned, but they didn't. All the children that Adam and Eve had were born to them after they had sinned. And so all the living who would be born to Eve would also be sinners. And that's where we fit in because we're descendants of Adam and Eve. We are born sinners That is not sins that we've committed, but a sin nature that means we will experience death at some point in our lives. All of us are born with a clock running. At some point, we will no longer live in the flesh, in the flesh. Now, Adam knew that she would eventually give birth to their descendants. He knew this. This was their command. Remember, God had commanded them. And all of their descendants would be born with their parents' sin nature. So the name Eve not only designates that she would be a mother and the mother of all the living, but that she would be the mother of a sinful race. And we acknowledge this. We recognize this. There's no question in our minds that no matter how beautiful a child is, every child, every one of us, was born with a sin nature. And that sin nature becomes glaringly apparent as time goes on, doesn't it, parents? It doesn't take long, does it? No, not long at all. Before you know it, they're a few months old, and and you notice something. Oh, my goodness. What is it about this child? They're willful. They know how to say no, it seems like, almost immediately, as soon as they start to speak. Mine seems to come out of their mouth very quickly. We were blessed this weekend to spend time with my sister's two boys, uh, two of her three boys, but the two little ones. And uh, you realize, you know, I get why Cain and Abel had their problems. It doesn't take long to realize sin is bound up in the heart of a child. We're all selfish, and it starts at a young age. And so parents, don't be all wigged out because your kid can be problematic at times. Your children have their moments. You did too. And we're hoping that through good training and biblical teaching, and proper management of your families, that they'll learn to bring that sin nature to Christ and surrender it. But they're they're still going to make mistakes. You're still making mistakes, and you will continue to do so. And sin comes so naturally to us. And so Eve was named, and I think when Adam made this decision to name her in this way, it wasn't just acknowledging that she would be a mother, 
but that she would also not only be the mother of a race of sinners, but as we saw in chapter 3, verse 15, the mother of the Savior of mankind. That is, eventually, women, a woman, would give birth to the Savior. That that son would be born as 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 chapter 3 tells us, the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, not the man. And of course, we know that that is Jesus Christ, the Savior. And while each of them would eventually die physically the result of sin, a man would be born, the God-man, who would die, but would be raised to life, never to die again, so that each and every one of us sinners, through Jesus Christ, can be raised never to die again. Amen? Now, her name indicates Adam's faith, actually. His faith in God, the promised seed of the woman. He realized that he would certainly die, the result of his sin, but he still believed that God had an answer, that he would provide life through the woman's seed. So this is all about faith in the future. And, of course, it would be very far in the future, but still, Adam had that faith. Now, when we get to verse 21, it says the Lord God. I've mentioned this before. The words that are employed there in Hebrew is like Jehovah, which is the personal God, Lord, and then God, which is Elohim, which is a word that can be used to describe elders, it can be used to describe angels, it can be used to describe, in in a plural way, the Trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because English is different than Hebrew, you have this this word Elohim, It, it really means God in at least three persons, El would be like El Shaddai, that's God the Father, that's, that's singular. Elah is a word that we don't use for God, but that means two. Like we might use the word both, and we might use the word all to describe more than two. Well, Elohim is a plural word that describes God as at least three persons. So you have Jehovah, the personal God, Elohim, God, plural. And it's important, when we go back to the very first verse of the Bible which we studied some time ago, we read in the beginning, God, that is Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit involved with that. And of course, there are times where because that word is plural and it's translated into a plural word in English, then the pronouns appropriately used would be our and us. So many times people get a little confused. Well, well why is it saying us? Who is, he, who is God speaking about? Is he speaking to the angels? Is he speaking to someone else? No, because the word Elohim, the Lord God, is plural, the appropriate pronoun in English is us, even though we're talking about one God, but we're talking about one God in three persons. So hopefully that helps you to understand. We'll see that again in the book of Genesis. So the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, so many times we just go over that verse. We read that verse, verse 21, and we say, oh, okay, well, that was nice because they were wearing fig leaves and that didn't seem very appropriate. So that's nice that, that he made garments out of skin. God is very caring. How wonderful that is, except that we haven't usually take the moment to think, whose skin? What skin? There was no skin growing on trees. They, they didn't have a shopping mall. You, you don't go and buy a, a, a leather outfit or a, an outfit of skin. Where did the skin come from? And, and, and we go over this very quickly. We gloss over it, and we don't take the time to realize something had to die in order to provide the skin 
of the garments made of skin, right? Something had to die. And of course, this starts a process and, and, a, and a prophecy of sorts. Bill mentioned it as he opened. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. It's a principle not only mentioned in the book of Hebrews, but throughout the Bible, especially in the book of Leviticus, you have these animal sacrifices. Why did God do it that way? Well, first, the first animal sacrifice happened here and now in verse 21. And it was God teaching them through this animal sacrifice that an animal had to die to cover or atone for their sin. Now, ultimately, Christ would come and die once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring them to God. That would happen. But this becomes a teaching that goes through the next chapter and throughout the Bible, and then is codified in the law as Moses has given all of the rules and regulations for animal sacrifice. But remember, before the law, Abraham sacrificed animals, Noah. So animal sacrifice actually precedes the law. The law did not establish it. God established it before the law. It was established in the Garden of Eden at this moment, and the Lord God made garments for Adam and Eve from the skins of these animals. Now, you can try to guess what type of animal, more than likely, we're talking about sheep, or we're talking about cattle, we're talking about one of the animals that are typically sacrificed throughout the Bible. But regardless the skins were necessary because they now knew that they were sinners and they were covering their nakedness. We'll talk a little bit about that some more this morning. So this is God establishing animal sacrifice. Remember that they had tried to cover themselves by the work of their hands. They were in the garden. Uh, There were no skins available. And so they looked at the fig leaves. What they did basically is they took these leaves, sewed them together, and created garments for themselves. And of course, I've said this before, this is a vivid picture of religion at its best, or its worst. That is, us trying to attempt to cover ourselves before God. And, you know, when you think about it, just think about this. Today, if you left your house and you had a choice to wear skins of animals, now I know some of you may be offended by that, but take that up with the Lord. Or fig leaves on the way in, I don't think it's much of a choice. I think it's pretty obvious that one is so much better than the other. And isn't that true about a relationship with God through the blood of Christ versus the work of our own hands? See, I want you to think about the fig leaves as the work of our own hands. It was their work. They did it. I'm not sure if it was a a large garment, if it covered a lot. I just know this. From what I hear, they're very itchy and scratchy. I, I, I can tell you, I like wool until I wear it. I remember I had a really nice merino uh, wool sweater for a while. And uh, it was great, except that if it touched my neck, I don't know, I start doing this and itch. It's really nice, but i got to wear a shirt underneath because it itches. Can you imagine what it must have been like to wear the work of their own hands, these fig leaves? Next time you're, well, not too many of us have gardens with fig trees, but when I was growing up, every Italian had one. And... You could tell because, again, I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, and I grew up in an Italian neighborhood where really everybody was first or second generation. And so sometimes they would actually bring their fig trees over from Europe, or they had a fig tree, 
And, and in the winter, they would cover it with like a garbage bag. They'd wrap it all up and they'd have these wonderful figs. So if you happen to have access to that, the next time you see a fig tree, maybe just touch the fig leaves and see if that's something you might want to wear. I, I suspect no. So that represents what we do to try to cover our own sins. It's inefficient. It's ineffective. It never really gets the job done. We have a world filled with religions. And, you know, it's sad. Because at best, religion is man's attempt to reach God. I mean, the Jewish religion was established by God to point to Jesus Christ. And when the Jews, as a people, refused or rejected Jesus Christ, then that religion became a dead religion of works, fig leaves. And then since then, we've had many other religions, even religions that predated Christianity, that attempt to bring people to God. And it's sad to me, because I know some very, very good people, good in the sense that they're nice people, and they try to do good. In fact, they do good. We're involved in Buddhism. And uh, Buddhism teaches some very wonderful principles. It, it really does. If you look at the things that Buddhists try to accomplish, it's fig leaves, but they try to accomplish things that actually we would probably agree with. And there's, in Islam, there's an extremist wing, obviously, and there are those that are not so extremist, who actually, if you, if you broke down what they live and what they believe, you'd find something out. They actually, we have more in common with many of them than we do with those in the world. Because morally, a lot of what they teach and, and, and believe, we can agree with. And of course, not all, because you see these terrorists who have taken, unfortunately, a religion that does teach the things that they are practicing. That's one of the things to remember. I've heard people say, well, well we're all serving the same God. Listen, we're not. We're not. First of all, Jews have rejected Jesus Christ. Okay? I don't say that to be disparaging of Jewish people. They do worship the same God, Jehovah God, but they have rejected Jesus Christ. Islam worships a God that looks nothing like the God of the Jews or, or Christians or Jesus Christ. Okay? You know, if you're familiar with the Quran, you'll find out that their scriptures actually, if taken literally, teach them to do the things that they're doing in the Middle East. Now, I don't say that all Muslims do that. I, I've had some very close friends who are Muslims who would never do those things. Sadly, there are many within the world who believe that when they're killing Christians and Jews, they're actually serving God. See, that's what religion will get you. It will bring you to a place where you're trying to cover yourself with fig leaves, the work of your hands, and all it will ultimately end up in is you proving to the world that you're a sinner. And then we have Christians who don't understand that it's not by the work of their hands that they're saved, but it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. And there are many denominations and sects of Christianity that teach you you must do in order to be close to God. You have to do this or do that or don't do that and don't do this. And the sad thing is there are so many people who may even believe in the truth of the Bible but they're legalists in the sense that they're attempting to try to please God through dead works. And that, you can put that on par with a false religion in many ways. Okay, they believe in the right God, the true God of the Bible, but the way they're serving him, we'll see when we get to this next week, it's Cain and Abel. 
Cain, who wants to worship God by the work of his hands, and Abel, who understands you have to sacrifice of the flock. A lamb, the lamb of God, had to die. And so as we look at all that religion has to offer us, let's be honest with ourselves, and let's just take a moment and think this through. The terrorists of today may be coming from Islam, but the terrorists of 1,500 years came from Christianity. You need only read enough history to find out that is true. All right? Let's be honest about that. Now, I don't say that they were Christians, but Pope Innocent III put to death 70,000 people on one day, and that's just one example. Palpagensis, the Waldenses, these were groups of people that believed like we did. Constantine tried to destroy the Donatists. They were people that believed like we did. So religion, even if it comes out of Christianity, is a very dangerous thing. And there are many people who haven't come to Christ because they look and they say, I want no part of religion. And I always love to tell them, I'm the least religious person you'll ever meet. And they look at me like, how could that be true? You're a pastor. You read your Bible all the time. Because I don't sow fig leaves. I look to the blood sacrifice and I take no credit, nor do I try to achieve anything in my flesh. In my flesh dwells no good thing. I reject religion. I reject it. I always have. I reject it because it brings terrorism. It brings death. It brings hate. But don't reject Jesus Christ, who is love. God is love. He died on the cross for our sins so that we don't have to play religious games. So yes, you're in a church, and yes, technically Christianity is a religion, but it really isn't. It's a relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Amen. Amen. That's a good truth, isn't it? But what about the animals? I know some of you have pets and some of you love animals and you're thinking that doesn't seem fair and it's really not. But it wasn't fair that Jesus Christ had to die either. I mean, it's less fair that he had to die for us than animals had to die to cover our sin. And remember in the Old Testament, atone or cover was simply to cover, not to do away with. Christ's blood did away with sin, covered completely, eliminated, eradicated sin. The animals, that was just a symbol of what was to come. And yet God felt it necessary to teach us this truth so that when Jesus Christ came, we would recognize the answer to the sin problem. And the answer to the sin problem is Jesus Christ's death on the cross and resurrection. Amen? So you have these garments. And while man can never cover himself by the work of his own hands... God must cover him the result of a blood sacrifice. If you don't make this distinction between relationship and religion, you haven't been listening. Because the Bible makes it abundantly clear that we're saved in Jesus Christ. Now the Lord performed the very first animal sacrifice. He did it on man's behalf. We're not given any of the information. We just have one verse. But the logical conclusion is that's exactly what he did. Certain animals had to die in order to provide them with their clothing. Animals today, this wasn't the case then. At the time, man was a vegetarian. After the flood, that changed. And God commanded them to eat meat. Thank you, Lord. 
I'll remember that the next time I'm at a churrascaria, you know. Thank you, Lord. But before that, before that happened, man was a vegetarian, but animals still had to die. These were the first animals to suffer death. Nothing had died before this. This is the result of man's sin. And this established a principle called substitutionary atonement. That means something else died for you. Ultimately, Christ died for you, but something else had to die for those who were covered. Innocent blood. Innocent, notice, you, you would say it's not fair, and it's true because the blood is innocent. Innocent blood must be shed as a condition of the forgiveness of sin. Well, I don't like that, Pastor Tim. Well, you know, I may not like it either, but it's still the truth. Innocent blood. And that establishes that Jesus Christ was without sin, innocent. Are the animals innocent? Absolutely. They don't know sin or righteousness. But they died because innocent blood must be shed. And this later became an acceptable act of worship for all mankind. So then mankind began to worship God through animal sacrifice. Again, before the law. What God did is he clothed them to cover their nakedness now that they were self-aware. We've talked a little bit about this before. God considers clothing so important that he provided it himself. Now, it's more than just covering. And they did indeed know that they were naked. They, they did understand that they were sinners. And we've talked about the fact that there is a shame, an inerrant shame that comes upon us. Maybe not the little, little ones. They're really something, right? Give them an opportunity, they'll streak around the block. But as we get a little bit older, we recognize. It's funny, as the kids get older, you know, God forbid you touch the, the bathroom door while they're in there. So something happens. Something changes. It's because they become aware as they become older. They become aware of their, their nakedness, their, even their sin nature. And God considered it so important. He provided clothing for them. So the shame that's associated with nudity, it's not an artificial innovation uh, of, of society. It's not something we created. It's, it's actually within us. It, it, it shows us that we understand we're sinners. It really does. And it's not a being ashamed of your body. I don't think anyone should be ashamed of their body, but it's a shame that comes as a result of knowing you're a sinner. And we, as we learned in previous studies, it's reflected in the fact that you and I, that we understand we need to wear clothes. It's an awareness of sin. And the only time that people lose that shame, that modesty is probably a better word, is when they so give themselves over to sin that their conscience is hardened to sin, and they actually have, as Paul described, a seared conscience, as, as with a hot iron. And then in that case, people cast off their clothing and march down the street and celebrate their sin. But that's because they've reached a place of callousness. So if you have that shame or that modesty that's associated with nakedness, it proves that you have a recognition of your sin. Now you need to just confess that sin to Jesus Christ and be saved. Amen? So it's not a bad thing to have modesty, let's be honest. And by the way, I've mentioned this before, clothing is even worn in heaven. And clearly it was worn by Adam and Eve. Now we get to this issue of paradise lost. And paradise was lost to them. Eden had been created for them. But now sin 
one of the consequences of sin, they could no longer live in paradise. The Lord didn't want mankind to live forever in sin, in, in separation from him. So we see in verse 22, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us. And again, that's because Jehovah Elohim, plural, said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now, when I first read that, I thought, well, there's the solution. All he needs to do is eat from this tree. I mean, he he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So if he eats of the tree of life, he'll be saved. No. What would happen is he would live forever in a sinful state. The angels who have sinned live forever in a sinful state. There is no salvation for them. See, if man had reached out and ate of the tree of life at this point, he would have lived forever. There was something about that tree of life that would have preserved his body, turned back the death or dying process, the aging process. And if he ate from that, can you imagine? I mean, in our culture today, we're obsessed with zombie movies, but... I don't know that they would have been zombies, but they would have been walking spiritual zombies, walking through life, never to die, never to get out of the wicked body that we have as sinners, and never dying so that their spirits could be given new life. That would not do. So when God banishes them from the garden, it's for their own good. You know, God does a lot of things like that, prevents us from doing things for our own good. Parents, have you ever prevented your children from doing something for their own good? Like eating cookies for breakfast. I'm sure that if you said to your children, tomorrow, guess what we're having for breakfast? What, eggs? No, cookies. Chocolate chip cookies. And you can eat as many as you want. Can you imagine the morning you would have getting those kids to school or to church? Especially chocolate chip cookies? No, for, your, for their own good and your sanity, you say, you know what? No cookies for breakfast. Sometimes there are things that we as parents, as guardians do, and it doesn't seem so good, but it's actually very good because you're protecting your children. That's what God was doing here. And there was consensus within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They needed to intervene. Something needed to be done. He acknowledged that man was now aware of the knowledge of good and evil. You see that? He only knew good, but now he knows good and evil. Mankind had become, as Satan had said, like God in his knowledge. But here's the difference, not in his nature. So you can know good and evil like God knows good and evil. He knows it. But his nature is that he doesn't do any evil. He only does good. God is good. Amen? So, here's the problem, and we've mentioned this before. Unlike God, man and woman would know good, but they would never have the power to do good. They would know it, but not have the power to do it. And unlike God, they would know evil without the power to avoid it. That's a problem, and it needed to be solved. And it has been solved in the person of Jesus Christ. God realized that man could still avoid physical death through the tree of life. But God loved mankind far too much to ever allow this to happen. Death was necessary for salvation for mankind. Living with the consequences of sin for all eternity is what we call hell. Man would have had a living hell. Because that's what living with the consequences of sin for all eternity would be, hell. 
So God didn't want man and woman to live in hell on earth. So he intervened. His plan, of course, we know this, was to save them from sin's penalty through the woman's seed, the Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, when we get to the book of Revelation, we see that the fruit of the tree of life is freely available in eternity. And the reason that's the case is because at that point, they will, we will, all of us will, have resurrected bodies, perfect bodies, and therefore the tree of life will not affect us negatively. But at this point, it would have. And so, they had to be separated from the garden. They couldn't eat from that tree. And the Lord prevented mankind from living forever in sin and separation from him, as we read in verses 23 through 24. So the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Notice, to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, that's to prevent them from getting to the tree of life. To keep them from living forever in sin. He banished man from the garden. And this is the result of the curse. Man clearly had no desire to abandon God's abundant blessings, so he would be forced to cultivate fields and plant crops in order to eat. That was part of the curse. And, of course, he would eventually die and return to the dust of the ground. That was necessary. If Jesus didn't die, could he have been raised to life? Think it through. If Jesus didn't die, as he said, as a seed must be put in the ground, it has to be put in the ground in order to burst forth with life. Jesus had to die in order to bring life to mankind. Man has to die in order to be raised to eternal life. And so now we understand why they were banished. Why was paradise lost? That paradise might be realized in all eternity or for all eternity. And so he restricted man's access to the tree of life, and he did so within the Garden of Eden. Now, I mentioned this before. After the flood, wherever the Garden of Eden was, was destroyed. So if you were to go looking for the Garden of Eden, you couldn't find it because the earth has been completely changed. Wherever it is, wherever it was, there's no way we could possibly know. But at that time, he placed cherubim. You you know what cherubim are. They're very high-order angelic beings. We see them throughout the scriptures in Ezekiel, and we see seraphim, which are very similar in Isaiah. We see them also, the living creatures in the book of Revelation. They always seem to surround the throne of God. And their job was to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden. That is, they would prevent man from ever going back into this garden and getting access to the tree of life. By the way, they seem to be the highest order of angels, the highest order, and they're always associated with the presence of God. They're right around the throne of God. They're not on the throne of God, but they are around the throne of God. And there are many different examples and scriptures that testify to this. Psalms, Ezekiel, Revelation, we see it throughout. In Ezekiel 28, verse 14, we learn through what seems to be symbolism, we learn that Satan had once been an anointed cherub. He's called the anointed cherub that covered. That means the throne of God. So maybe at one time there were five of them. But Satan fell from grace. And so now we see four surrounding the throne of God throughout the scriptures. And they are always where the throne of God is. Holy, holy, holy 
They proclaim, as we saw in the book of Revelation, holy, holy, holy. Three holies. Why? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the cherubim are there. Okay, let's take a moment and think this through. The cherubim are there. Where's the throne of God? Or should I say, where are the cherubim? Around the throne of God. So it seems to me that what we're seeing in the east of Eden, protecting the Garden of Eden from mankind sneaking back in, it's the throne of God. It's God's throne, or the, or the representation of God's throne on earth. They're preventing them from accessing the tree of life. Now something else, it says a flaming sword. Now when I first saw this, of course, the way I think, you know, I, I see this like sword with a hilt, you know, and we imagine that. Uh, that would be a poor translation, or uh, it would be picturing that inappropriately. Let me help you to understand what this is. A flaming sword. This suggests that God's presence was in the Garden of Eden, which we know it was. God's presence in the tabernacle and the temple was very similar. It was called a pillar of cloud and fire. So if you were to describe something like that, you know, you might say a, a flaming sword, a pillar of cloud and fire. Abraham, when he experienced this, saw what he called a, a flaming torch. He, you see, when the presence of God is experienced by mankind, there is this Shekinah glory of God that shows up in the wilderness, over the tabernacle, also over the temple when Solomon dedicates the temple. That Shekinah glory of God protected the Israelites as they crossed the Red Sea and they were being chased by the Egyptians. It stood between the Israelites and the Egyptians as they crossed over. You see this over and over again. I've mentioned this many times. You see this pillar of cloud or fire, and it is representative of, it actually is the presence of God. When Moses went up onto the mountain to receive the law, you had the Shekinah glory of God, cloud and fire. So as I look at this, it's not so much that there was a sword there. I, don't, I, don't, I think it's just a word to try to describe what was there. It's a, it's a flaming pillar. It's something that represents or is actually the presence of God. So you have the presence of God, the throne of God, surrounded by the cherubim, which is a consistent picture within Scripture, right at the entrance to paradise. And that just goes to show all of us how serious God was about saving mankind and not allowing man to destroy himself and sentence himself to an eternity of living in sin. Amen? I hope that that helps you to see this for what it is. But what we do know, the entrance to the Garden of Eden more than likely became their temple. It became their place of worship. We see later on in the next chapter they would bring their, or at least Abel brought his sacrifices before God. They didn't have a temple, so where did they do these things? Well, the, it's logical to assume that all of the worship that took place the worship of God by mankind at that time, this is before the flood, took place right there at the entrance to paradise. They couldn't enter in, but they could come before the throne of God with an animal sacrifice to worship God in his presence, the throne of God. 
Now, why is that important? Because that same picture follows us all the way through the entire Bible. In the Old Testament, they created, as God ordained, a tabernacle. And what was the Holy of Holies in that tabernacle like? Well, you had the Shekinah glory of God, you had the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of the Ark was the cherubim, the mercy seat. The cherubim. And the cherubim were even carved onto the walls or, or embroidered into the cloth. They were there. You see, it's, it's representative of the throne of God, which is what I believe Adam and Eve actually saw. And then, of course, later in the temple, the same is true. Oh, and, and then we find something out. We find out that when Jesus Christ came, he established our access to the Heavenly Father by his death and resurrection. Now, the symbolism follows straight through the Old Testament into the New Testament. And of course, the presence of God that we experience today through the power of the Holy Spirit, it isn't a pillar of fire and cloud. We don't see the cherubim. But wait a minute, let's just stop a moment. That moment of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the picture as is described by the gospel writers is very interesting. It's a very interesting picture. Because as you consider what it must have looked like to those approaching the empty tomb, it says they looked in there and they saw the sepulcher. It would have been like a table where the body of Jesus was. And of course, he is not there. He is risen. He's risen indeed. But what was at the head of each side? of that altar of sacrifice, if you will, the place where they laid the body of Jesus, we're told that there was an angel on each side. It becomes a very interesting picture of the throne of God in the sense that you have the, not cherubim, but you have the angels. And you have the place where Christ bled and died. Well, he he bled on the cross and was carried there and buried in the tomb, but he rose from the dead. And so every time we see a picture of the throne of God, it it comes back to Jesus Christ. It always does. And the picture of Jesus at the resurrection points us, at least symbolically, to the throne of God and the presence of God. As God has made a way where there was no way. Oh, we still worship at the entrance to paradise. We still worship at the empty tomb. We still worship at the place where we recognize that Christ died for our sins. You know, almost every church has an altar. See behind me? Now, we don't use that altar. It's symbolic of the death of Jesus Christ who died. They would build altars to have animal sacrifice. And some churches, they receive the communion and they kind of prepare the communion on the altar. Sometimes it's symbolic. Sometimes it's a little bit more than that. But never forget the altar. Never forget the picture of the risen Christ in the empty tomb. The altar is the place where Christ died for our sins. And because he died, we have access. Remember what happened in that temple in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem when Christ died on the cross? We're told that the veil in the temple, which is really more of a curtain, was rent from top to bottom. It was an earthquake and it rent from top to bottom. And at that point, mankind had access to the holy presence of God through the death of Jesus Christ. So the picture of worship in the presence of God always points to Jesus in one way or another.
And we, like Adam and Eve, worship before the throne of God. And what does the pillar of fire or the flaming sword represent? Oh, his glory. The kabod or the weight of God or the shekinah glory of God. And the cherubim, well, they surround the throne of God. And as we get to the last book of the Bible, which we studied before we studied this, the first book of the Bible, we learn that in the presence of heaven, the cherubim surround the throne of God. But guess what? We surround them. We are so near to the throne of God. In fact, I got one for you. Jesus even promised that if you overcome, you can sit with him on his throne. We have access to the throne of God for all eternity through the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, there's so much that we have received through you sending your son Jesus to die in our place. They were banished, were welcomed in. They could look at the throne, but they couldn't enter in. We can come boldly before your throne of grace for help in our time of need, for mercy. Because of your grace, we have access where they did not. Because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross and resurrection, we can spend an eternity in your presence. You've welcomed us in. Paradise has been restored for all eternity. And the tree of life, which represents Christ's death on the cross, he died on the tree for our sins, that tree is open and available to us symbolically, but one day in eternity will be open and available to us as well. Lord, you had a way. You made a way where there was no way. You're the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by you. And all religion can do is attempt and fail to restore paradise. But paradise has been restored to us, for you said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, Lord God, we have so much to be thankful for. We worship you. We are grateful that you have restored us through the blood of Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Is God good?